0: This is Flex and Herds bringing you Death of the Reader here on 2SCR. It is our second week discussing The Sign of the Four by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the second novel in the Sherlock Holmes canon. We are discussing chapters six to nine this week on the show, in which Herds, Sherlock Holmes does everything I expected he would yes. in just about the order I expected he would.
1: Look... I'm not going to confirm or deny that this is the most straightforward murder mystery we've had on this show, but it is either going to be exactly what Sherlock Holmes says it is, or there's some crazy twist and he's just been fooling us the whole time.
0: Yeah, I do not think it is in the spirit of the old-fashioned British sensibilities of literature that we are currently stuck headfirst into to undermine Sherlock Holmes here. It seems more like we are actually going to get further and further in and have more characters explain what complicated things Sherlock managed to weasel his way around to make him look even better.
1: Well, I I will say we get introduced to quite a few new characters. We get to see Sherlock Holmes' gang that he leads, the Baker Street Irregulars, who apparently he just he just has a bunch of like other amateur detectives that aren't as qualified as he is, but I guess more qualified than Watson question mark? Who he can just tell to like run around and spy on people.
0: Are these the the young kids that he brings in and pays off to tell him everything he needs to know?
1: I'm pretty sure, yes. I'm pretty sure this is literally an army of orphans. Uh, yeah, that, I, that was the off. impression
0: I got as well. That was
1: Yeah, def- I don't know that it's ever explicitly stated who they are or where they come from, but that's the impression I get, that they're just a bunch of orphans. And he's like, I'll pay you, sure thing, kid. And yeah, that's that's it. That's the Baker Street Irregulars. Um, we've also met a bumbling policeman. Uh, a rival detective who doesn't know really what he's doing is following Sherlock Holmes around and a dog, and that's the honestly the best new character.
0: the Toby is the best new character i love I love the introduction scenes every time someone just happens to know Sherlock Holmes. It's like, oh a confrontation. we have no idea what to do. and then someone mentions Sherlock Holmes, and all problems are solved.
1: yeah, exactly. like it happened with the doorkeeper or like, I would like to come in and see my literal brother. And he's like, well, my, your brother didn't tell me you was coming. So you're going to have to wait out there while we figure it out. And Sherlock Holmes is like, hi, didn't we used to like fight out in the streets that one time? And he's like, oh yeah, you really, you put up a really good fight. You do come on in, Mr. Holmes. Sure thing.
0: Yeah, and then Watson's like, here, let me borrow a dog. And the guy's like, I'm about to sick 39 bloodhounds to rip your limb from limb. (laughs) Yes, yes. And then he says Sherlock Holmes and just opens the door without further notice.
1: Yeah, it's the thing. He doesn't even apologize or like go, oh, this is how I know Holmes. He's just like, oh, all right, I get it. And he just lets him in. It's fantastic.
0: As I said, it is very much the old fashioned British sensibilities of literature. And they are... They are nothing if not charming yes. in in their quaintness.
1: It's the old British humor, uh, humor comedy, you know, shining through. A little bit of black comedy there too, which is always, always, always nice to see. You yeah, know, I love Toby. I, again, I mentioned I mentioned last week on the show, the first time I saw Sherlock Holmes was in Basil the Great Mouse Detective. That was my first exposure. And I'm pretty sure Toby's in that too. There is a giant dog that they ride around on as little mice. And I'm pretty sure his name is Toby. I,
0: I feel as though dogs in one form or another is a staple of every form of Sherlock Holmes adaptation. Yeah, yeah. Though I, I would not I would not care to list them for, for the sake of showing my own uh, incompetence with the Sherlock Holmes canon. But that, of course, is why you've challenged me to this book. I, I will say, Herds, in between this and last week, I was made aware of the fact that I have watched the BBC adaptation uh titled the sign of the three uh-huh. um, and I, I wanted to say herds i've I've passed you a note under the table here that I won't show the audience in case it comes true but if it does end up being the case I will forfeit one of the points
1: okay Sounds good. I'm, I'm into that.
0: Just because I do not think that they are the same story, but if they share the same elements, I wanted I wanted to let you know I'm playing fair here.
1: You know what? I appreciate that. We're all about fair play in here, not just on the author's side of things, but on our side of things too. Yeah, I did want to to point out something real quick because I find it I find it very interesting. Look, because I'm still on the dock. I'm still you know fascinated by the introduction of Toby to the narrative. I can't think of any other you know detectives. That have an animal companion as kind of a mainstay part of, of the cast, let alone being, you know, the the faithful Toby who stiffs out criminals or whatever. Like, you'd think that there would be more murder mysteries, whether it's like a trusty seed that gets you around, like faster than the Police, or, you know, a, a cat that you pet all the time, while you're thinking, or it, it seems as though most murder mysteries stick with a purely human cast. And I guess it's because you, like, you can't suspect. Mm. An animal, like, you can't suddenly say, ah, well, the dog was giving you false information because it's in on the crime, because it's master told it to. Like, I guess you could, but I feel like most murder mysteries stray away from that.
0: All I'm saying, Herds, all I'm going to say is that if we get to the climax of this novel and there is a twist murderer, it is going to be unveiled because Toby smells the chemical on them.
1: Dude. I'm in. That would be, you know, you get you get a bonus point. That's what happens. That's straight up in. <laughs> you get one extra point just for that.
0: Well, what was the point of me forfeiting a point?
1: For <laughs> to make up for that point. That's the whole point. It's All the right. Whole, the point I appreciate your
0: generosity, Herds. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah that's what I'm here for. No, I mean, I, I think that we have seen novels where we've had kind of backup detectives in the form of animal companions. We had Philo Vance's dog in the kennel murder case, for example, you know we said we said that that novel perhaps underutilized its dog companions as well but you know they are out there they do exist one could argue the case that australian television icon skippy was in fact an animal detective but
1: you know what? that's that's uh, i don't know if i'm going to make that that stretch there
0: i i don't think that skippy quite qualifies for this show. yeah
1: i don't think i could go on that journey with you but i appreciate the thought shout out to skippy <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think one of the interesting things in this uh, in this stretch of the novel is, I mean, obviously we have Sherlock Holmes, as I suspected, completely debunking the locked room within seconds of its appearance, but I, I did like the way uh, that we were p- p- sledgehammered with the use of the British police in this novel. It is obviously a staple of older style uh, mystery novels to have the detective versus the police, and... I knew this was going to be the case, but I was somewhat taken aback and somewhat overjoyed by just how incompetent they were.
1: Oh, it was, it was beautiful. Just like rereading this novel and the policeman, he comes in and he throws together a half-baked theory. He says, you know, this is probably what happened. And Sherlock Holmes is like, that doesn't make any sense. He says, well, it was close. And he like walks out of the room. He, he walks out of the room. Like yep. that's, that's all he's there for to say, this is probably it. I've done my job, you know, I don't need to think about it too hard and that's it.
0: If, if we had established to some extent that, you know, maybe he was trying to get as many collars as he could so that he could buff up his numbers for the month's review, <laughs> if we'd established that maybe he was being premature for the sake of keeping these people in prison so that they could be protected from whatever actual murderer might be out there, that would be good. But no, he just waltzes in, says, this is what it is, boys, and that's it. You know, obviously Sherlock Holmes has this reputation in London because everyone knows him, but for some reason... Reason this police detective is just so willing to basically make himself look like a fool by going against Sherlock, it seems like stupid beyond belief.
1: It's, it's beautiful. Like the, the actual line is that, uh, Althony Jones, that's our police officer here, walks in, is trying to, you know, bust open locked room, sees the like trap door in the ceiling, uh, that, that may have been used to enter the room. It says, aha, see, it's even open. The trap door is even open. So that, that confirms that that's how they got in and out. And Sherlock is like, I did that when I investigated it 10 minutes ago. And he's like, well, that doesn't matter. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter what the facts are, uh, except that, that's all I care about is the facts. Like, that's what he says, but it's not what he does. Uh, he just completely ignores what Sherlock says and just leaves. And that's it. Like, I don't I don't even think he shows up in the story again. He just is there to be a bumbling detective and amuse us for a few moments. Uh it's kind of refreshing though. I I kinda like it. Like, he's not a proper character, but I have not laughed harder at a, a detective's, you know, police offense. In a very long time.
0: I mean, as as we've said several times in talking about this book, it very much reflects an old fashioned British comedy, the the traces of which perhaps uh, perhaps we saw the tail end of and have maybe expired at this point. But the things that I watched growing up definitely kind of reflected similar, if slightly more modern variations on this same kind of bumbling fool trope. I think, especially like ones that I uh, I grew up with, like Dad's Army and whatnot. They uh, very much just idolise this idea of the the bumbling idiot still managing to do the right thing, and it, it's it's curious to see how much of a staple that seems to have been through British history. If that was the case, even back <laughs> at the time of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle,
1: very very satirical comedy, which you you can't always tell uh, to somebody who hasn't like experienced these shows before if it's like is this real? Like, is this really the story that I'm experiencing right now? Like shout to, you know, Mr. Bean and like, uh, Monty Python, all that sort of thing. Like, mm. it's very much that kind of, uh, is a, is a term for it. Like, it's, it's throwaway. Like we do not care about your sensibilities. We do not care about like the respect you may have police officers in this moment. Uh, We're just here to poke fun at them. It's great.
0: And it's interesting because I feel like Sherlock Holmes has this mythos of being such a, you know, serious, straight, hardline character. And I don't think that that is necessarily reflected in adaptations because there are goofy moments definitely in the Robert Downey Jr. adaptation. There's definitely lighthearted moments in the BBC adaptations and, you know, ones that have appeared before that. But I feel like if you were to ask the layman on the street, you know, what is Sherlock Holmes like? I don't think they'd talk about that time that he busted into his house, his own house, dressed as an old man just to fool his housemate. Because it's not a moment that feels like it has any weight. It's just a throwaway piece of entertainment, which is great fun but really just doesn't do anything
1: it's 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 one of the uh the tools the weapons that Sherlock has to deal with criminals that he has this like network of orphans and he has these costumes that he uses to fool people and disguises and acting skills all that sort of thing but none of that has actually been shown on screen it's all just been him say, ah oh, yes now I will use my orphans now I will use my disguise and he does all of that while Watson sits around and you know, interrogates another de- detective for some reason.
0: <laughs> and I do think, I do think that that is one of the great strengths of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's writing, is that he is so confident at just putting things off screen, much in the same way that Sherlock is confident in making wild guesses about what the truth may be that just happened to be true. You know, when they leave the house in the first, uh, in the first few chapters, Watson just says he saw Sherlock pick up his revolver, assuming that it was going to be a serious case. And that's the only mention of, like, Sherlock's emotions leading in to the actual, you know, case... But it's just a very strong moment of like, this is what is happening. This is why he did it. And we move on. There's no great diatribe between Sherlock and Watson where they're like, oh, how dangerous do you think this will be? It's just not. He picks up his revolver and we leave.
1: It's also it's I, I like the word confident there. I think that that's a very good way of describing his writing here. Um, because he's actually very confident in the portrayal of Watson as well, in the in the amount of independence he gets. It's not quite the same as Archie Goodwin, where Archie Goodwin's independence uh, and strength is, is more or less at the expense of um, of uh, Nero Wolf. But... I, I like that when Sherlock says, hey, Watson, can you go get, get this dog for me? He just goes and does it. Like he's strong enough with a, a word of Sherlock Holmes' name. He's able to go off and do tasks and investigate things on his own. And I really like that. I like that a lot. It really means that Watson is as compelling and as present and competent a character as as Sherlock. Well, maybe not competent. Competent is a stretch, but everything else, like he's just as much of a character. Um, he's not just the the chronicler of of Sherlock Holmes's ideas. Um and on that note actually something I de- neglected to mention in the first part Uh, is that Watson and Shaw, they discuss Watson's detailing of a study in Scarlet and Holmes actually berates him for the way that he portrays the story as being very romantic, which is funny because that's the criticism that people kind of had at the second half of the novel. Like, well, this isn't the mystery at all. This is just some, some, you know, cowboys in Utah. Why does this matter to the murder mystery? And so he's, he's being very self-aware there. Mr. Arthur Conan Doyle is, um, And I don't know, I I love it. I love it so much.
0: You know, obviously we are a big fan here on the show of very responsive authors to the the musings of their audience and what they've done in their past works. And it's phenomenal to see a pioneer in the genre such as Arthur Conan Doyle actually being so incredibly self-aware when really he had no one to answer to because his only competition was himself.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is still very early in his career and you can, you can already see him improving, which is, it's very admirable. Um, Those are always my favorite authors in, in any genre, not just murder mystery, but authors and comic writers and game developers and, you know, all sorts of media creators. Anybody who I can kind of watch go from writing something that is competent Uh, And kind of honest and genuine So the, you know, understanding what their audience wants And what they're capable of And growing and growing and growing And building this kind of great mythos behind their characters In this case, Sherlock Holmes I really appreciate getting to read that journey.
0: Well, herds, I I think we should we should take a pause. Come back in a short bit, and we will speak about this mystery and uh, and how I think it can be solved.
1: Sounds good. You're gonna have to solve it. I'm sure you have a very difficult time with this. This
0: is extraordinarily one of, this is difficult. A, this is a
1: Sherlock Holmes <laughs> novel. This is so difficult, you yes, guys. Renowned for it. Renowned.
0: <laughs> anyway, we are Flex and Herds, we are discussing The Sign of the Four, chapters six to nine by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. We will be back with more of that in just a minute. You're listening to 2SER. you're listening to death of the reader we are Flex and herds here discussing the sign of the four by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle on your murder mystery world tour. It is our second week on Death of the Reader with this book. We are discussing chapters six to nine. I am challenged, tasked, in fact, with solving this incredibly complex, detailed, intricate, confusing, bewildering mystery, and uh, this is all Herds' scripting on the page in front of me because I fundamentally disagree with all of those.
1: What do you mean? It's such a hard murder mystery. You could never guess the culprit. It could be anyone. (laughs) There are so many options to pick from, like Jonathan Small and maybe Thaddeus, and- And maybe uh, three
0: other people from India who have at no point in the story appeared, or the or the random noble savage who doesn't seem to have anything to do with anything. Ah, uh,
1: yes, the noble savage. We have not talked about the noble savage. I don't- <laughs> Let's just- Okay, let's put it this way. So Arthur Conan Doyle might be suffering from a little bit of uh, old, old-itis, let's call it that. The way that he describes the the ethnic individual in this story... I,
0: I believe, I believe, Adanian?
1: He could have just left it at there was an Adanian character, but instead they're described as, like, narrow, fierce eyes and, like, an ugly face and, like, squat and, like, it's... Look, it's bad. It's not good. If you are easily offended by, by racism in general, bad depictions of ethnic individuals... Do not read this novel.
0: I will correct myself. It is uh, Andaman's. He is an Andaman aborigine. Uh, I. I mean, listen. It was a different time, a different place. Uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was clearly, as you say, suffering from a case of the colonialisms.
1: He actually he he describes him as naturally hideous. That's how he, yeah, he says, there's there's a black character in the story. They are naturally hideous. That is the only real defining quality other than
0: being small. And then perhaps three paragraphs later says that no women are to be trusted to a full extent and ever. I, I think that these are things you should be aware of if you are going in to read old novels. It is just the way things are going to be because old people in the 1800s were a little bit racist, a little bit sexist
1: a little bit racist, a little bit, a little bit offensive, would not be writing these novels uh, in the modern day. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, look, maybe in the third part it'll turn around, it'll turn out that this is always a big setup, this, like, I don't know, Islander character, they've been set up and they're really just a nice, swell guy, but I doubt it somehow, <laughs> I doubt it.
0: Yeah, anyhow, let's get into this case because I think, Uh, It is simultaneously staggering to me how little has changed in this story, but also how much has happened, because uh, Jonathan Small, the peg-legged man, has made an escape, waltzed off through the city to a man called Mordecai Smith, taken a steamboat, and more or less just disappeared, and... I'm a little confused as to where this is going because we spend a long time chasing him through the city. We have a fun little bit with Toby where he follows the wrong scent of a chemical and... Will that matter? Who knows? I I guess it's kind of just meant to be a tension building moment. Well, this
1: this is the thing, right, that I find so interesting about this novel because if the culprit is Jonathan Small, which I assume is where you're going with this, then Sherlock Holmes picked him as the culprit literally one chapter after the crime was introduced.
0: And before he had ever appeared on screen.
1: Yes. And he still hasn't also Jonathan Small and like, it it seems to have been very quickly accepted that Jonathan Small is our quarry, based on the amount of effort that Tomes is going to, to try and pin him down. So that's why like, even last week, I was saying like either this is all building towards a very straightforward conclusion, or there's go- there's got to be like a subversion of this entire journey, like. I I do not believe there is a middle ground there where it'll suddenly become, like, a sensible mystery.
0: I think- I think that the subversion that is going to happen is that it is going to turn out that, uh, that Jonathan Small is the Honorable One, and that it is Major Sholto and Captain Morstan who have, in fact, wronged him, just so that we actually get some plausible motive for the man, okay. rather than him just being quite literally a murderous pirate rampaging the streets of London. That'd
1: I mean, be pretty cool, though. i look- I'd like to be a murderous pirate rampage in the streets of London. That sounds like fun. Stealing steamboats and walking around with a pig leg and, like, threatening housewives or whatever. Like, look, I'm in.
0: I, I will say I am a little confused as to the steamboat thing. That, I think that is probably the, the singular most confusing point about the story. One could easily point to it as being, oh, he has taken a boat so that they will lose his scent trail. But I don't know why... Eight hours after the crime supposedly took place, he's particularly worried about people being hot on his trails. It's a little bit up the creek. I think the only plausible thing is that maybe he is going to, like, drop the the jewels at like the bottom of the Thames river until things blow over and then come get them back again. But I, I don't understand uh, why we've chosen the steamboat and if Mordecai Smith actually has anything significant to do other than just being a hired gun.
1: Well, that is the question, isn't it? We don't, we don't know much about this Mordecai Smith, do we? We know that they have a wife who's looking for him and Sherlock Holmes has put an end of the paper saying, golly gee, I'd love to find that Mordecai Smith.
0: It was a bit strange that ad in the paper because <laughs> yeah. Watson comes in and he goes, oh, that clever Sherlock. It's like, what was clever about that? He just put his own address at the bottom of a missing missing person's notice.
1: It's even better that, you know, Watson comes up with these ideas. He says, what do we ask amongst the boatsmen and see if they know? And he's like, no, that's too suspicious. The boatsmen will then know that we're that we're looking for him. <laughs> and he says, well, what about the police? He says, no, 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 they'll tip him off even more. And he's like, "Ah, oh, but a note in the paper. Like, Monica Smith probably can't read, that's fine, like like whatever.
0: <laughs> it doesn't make any sense.
1: That's the only explanation I can come up with is that they think that he can't read. So that that like he'll be able to take people talking about him, trying to find his boat, but not not in the paper. He won't he just won't be able to read about it, so it won't be a problem.
0: It's definitely peculiar. It doesn't make much sense, but the the thing I'm I'm left puzzled about, Herds, is if this story is actually going to bring around many of the concepts that it's introduced. Because last week you were talking about, you know, the chemicals being introduced and the the laboratory that was going on. You know, we were speaking about how... Uh, there was the locked room and that got immediately blown open. And if this was a serialized story, which I, it may have been, I'm not entirely certain about that.
1: I don't think it was. It's a short story, but I don't think it was serialized. No.
0: But if it was originally written with the intent of being serialized, I could maybe follow that these things were just being left behind because they were the previous week's edition and he'd maybe made some changes in response to people's writing. But because it is one whole novel and things just seem to keep disappearing off in the distance, I, I don't really understand what uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is trying to do with the puzzle, if anything, at this point because it seems to almost be forgetful of its own mentions. The fact that they're twins, I think, came up exactly once so far in the story, and whilst in other books I'd say, ah yes, a subtle clue that perhaps will point to later twists, we haven't seen any further evidence to the fact that uh, the Sholto twins are doing anything, you know, subversive to Sherlock. They seem to very much just be out of the picture entirely at the moment.
1: They haven't been on screen, certainly, but perhaps that's where the murderer hides in the shadows, in the periphery. Uh, but yeah, we, uh, we get this police this policeman to come back and he's like, hey, is it through my net? Because I, I couldn't find a way to pierce through his alibi. And it's like, surely there is a puzzle there that we could be playing with rather than just dismissing it completely.
0: Yep, but we, we never get to hear what the alibi is, who has provided it. Um, you know, if, if it could be said that it was all of the housekeepers who were maintaining that alibi, then it would be quite quite easy to create a circular alibi where they all had each other covered while they were all working on the crime together. But because we never get to hear the alibis, we have nothing to go off and nothing to work with, and thus it seems it is no part of the mystery at all.
1: This is this is one of the challenges that I face when trying to figure out where in this novel I should cut off each part because we really get all of the clues at once that are relevant to the mystery and then we just kind of chase Jonathan Small for a while. Um, so really, like, like I, I could have, you know, cut the first part at chapter four, I guess, and had the murder in the second part, but even then, like, I don't think there's enough clues in that case. Um, it's it was a bit of a challenge to try and uh, try and split this up. But anyway, we'll we'll, we'll see if you uh, are actually correct. Are you, you're still suspecting Jonathan Small, correct?
0: I'm still suspecting Jonathan Small. I suspect that the captain and the major back in the Indian conflict have somehow wronged uh, Mister Small. Sure. I don't know exactly how. It is implied uh, that he was a convict, correct? Uh, I believe so. I think that the most likely thing is perhaps that the major and the captain were responsible for this convict camp and, and used their station to take advantage of the prisoners. Looking back further, the actual first mention of being a convict guard was in chapter two, and that had skipped my mind until they mentioned it later on. So I think that that perhaps is one of the few examples of things coming back around in the story, and that points to me as it thus being significant. Perhaps the reason he was so afraid of the peg-legged man is because he realized that he'd screwed him over and was now coming for Major Sholto's uh, spoils, basically.
1: I suppose we'll have to uh, we'll have to wait and see how accurate all of that is. But yes, there is mention uh, that the uh, the treasure apparently that that has been gathered. There's a the chart uh, to do with the treasure is dated back to a time when uh, Morston was actually brought into close association with convicts. Mm. Uh, so it seems like Jonathan Small might have been a part of that situation there. Um, what do you think? I'm not going to judge any points based on this, but apparently this uh, Andonian or whatever, this very terrible racial archetype, what do you think that they fit into the picture, if at all?
0: I am a little confused. I remember that it was the Andaman Islands uh, that the Major and the Captain were convict guards there. But I, I would hesitate to say whether they are one of the sign of the four. I think it is implied through the way that he is described as the terrible stereotypical noble savage that he is that he is perhaps unrelated to the you know the convict's uh, situation itself it was more likely that perhaps he was someone who helped uh, who helped Jonathan Small escape from the prison early and that's why the major was surprised or something along those lines.
1: Yeah, friends in low places, as it were.
0: I I will say, though, the one thing that I am hoping becomes explained and I do feel dumb about is the 3.37 from left thing that was in the letter. I, I feel like that was too specific a detail for it to be left alone, but I have seen nothing to point at it thus far, be it like, you Know this is where the keys are going to be stashed from a certain position, or this is you know what time we're staging our escape. I don't know, but I hope that that comes back around again.
1: Yeah, I, I can't really comment on that particular number. Uh, it's uh, it's it's surely a very significant number that will become you know, we'll have a revelation, we'll realize ah, 3.37 it's your birthday combined with the number of dogs that I've owned in the past divided by 12 which is something significant. But yeah, I I am not too worried about you solving that particular mystery. I don't know how fair play that particular one is.
0: I, I do not suspect it to be fair play. I just hope that it is at least solvable.
1: Maybe. I will say, this is after all a story that introduces Watson's, Watson's wife, or, well, you know, suit to be wife Miss Mary, do you think that she'll have any part in the resolution going forward?
0: I hope so, but I would hesitate to guess at what. My perspective on her character, I will say, is somewhat tarnished by her representation in various adaptations, where I get the impression that her significance to the story has been vastly overstated relative to the book.
1: One of the things that Watson seems to be worried about is that um, if... Mary gets this treasure, she becomes a rich noble lady that he won't be able to pursue her anymore.
0: It could be a closing tension to the book, but I do not think that it is likely to be the entire crux of the ending. I feel like in the spirit of old-fashioned detective fiction, we're more likely to sit down with Jonathan Small and impress upon the world what was going on the entire way through this. I
1: suppose we'll have to find out next time, unless you have any other mysteries you want to bust word open.
0: No, I, I think that's just about all I had to bust open. I,
1: th- I think it is, honestly. But it's been a it's been a pleasure, uh, and yeah, if you have uh, managed to solve this, go along with this, you, you pretty much unchanged the answer from from Sherlock Holmes, as it seems, which is interesting. But uh, if you do happen to get this right, you will have two points on the table. Because your your answer has been pretty pretty similar to the one from the first part.
0: Provided, of course, that the note I've slipped you under the table does not tie into the solution.
1: We'll talk about that when we get there, mister. Don't you get your panties in a bunch.
0: You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds here on your Murder Mystery World Tour. We will be going from chapter 10 to the end, the 12th chapter of The Sign of the Four next week on Death of the Reader by Sir Arthur Kernan Doyle. Look forward to joining you then. You're listening to 2SER.